Our passage this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, it's good to be with your people with our weekly reminder that we're a needy people. We have a great need, but we have a great Christ who meets that need. And God, we continue to pray for Misty Gutting. We're thankful for small steps of progress for her, and we ask for even more. I pray especially tonight she would have a a night of rest as Lord willing. She'll be traveling to Houston for some rehab. I pray that you would help her to travel well, that she would have peace of mind as they make the journey there, and that you would just bless her with progress. Be with Brian, be with the rest of her family that they would be an encouragement to her. And I pray that her, her faith and her hope and her love for you would be strengthened in the midst of this trial. God, we're thankful for the discipleship weekend and we pray that those who were here and don't know you would be saved, that your word would continue to do its work, that the gospel would be the power unto salvation, that you, Holy Spirit, would haunt them and draw them to faith. Pray that those who do know you would continue to be edified, that it wouldn't just be a camp high for a day or two, but they would continue to desire to be kingdom people, knowing that it is the good life now and it's ultimately life eternal. Continue to conform us, conform them to the image of Jesus. Thank you for Josh Hayward and his faithful ministry this weekend, and we pray uh, for even Kenny Avenue Baptists as they meet this morning that Christ would be lifted up, that the saints would be encouraged and challenged, converted. Pray that they would have a deepening love for your word, that they would grow in mutual love and mutual accountability, that they would have an increased desire to see and not only see but help one another grow spiritually, that you would continue to raise up godly elders for that church. God, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would do what you love to do. Would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you build us up? Would you strengthen us? Would you shape us? Pray for Josh as he preaches that you would give him clarity and conviction and effectiveness by your spirit. Thank you again for graciously revealing yourself to us. Thank you for self-revelation for this word. Thank you for your promise that this word will bring forth growth. It will not return to you empty, but shall accomplish that which you purpose. Help us. Not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge you. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. We pray this because of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. It is so good to be with you all. I can't tell you how refreshing this is. I am in Austin, Texas, and this kind of stuff ain't happening there. So I am thankful to be here among the saints, and as far as I can tell, 
uh, saints who are eager to gather for worship together. Oh, it's beautiful. My heart is overflowing. And so I thank you for, for allowing me to come here and bring God's word to you uh, this morning. Uh, just a little bit about myself. I'm uh, married to Christina for about 15 years. She's an amazing woman. She is the love of my life and the joy of my life. And uh, we together have five wonderful kids, uh, Elijah, Lydia, Levi, Malachi, and JJ, uh, ranging from 11 to 3. And yes, that means we're really busy. But it is a delight. They are such a joy. And uh, this actually is the longest time, I think, certainly Elijah has been away from uh, his siblings. And so uh, pray for him. We're looking forward to going back this afternoon to see them. But it's been fun. We've been, we'd have a good time together. Um, and I want you to know that uh, I really love your pastor. I know you all love uh, Blake very much. And I don't say that as just, you know, he was an acquaintance of mine in seminary. And we were friends. We continue to maintain that friendship via text mainly. And then whenever we get together again, it feels like we pick up where we left off. He is a blessing to me. And I've actually confided in him uh, many times, just helping me think through pastoral ministry. So you have a gem in him as one of your pastors here. It is a joy to be with you. And as I was considering uh, what might be a helpful, encouraging passage for you, as uh, when Blake asked me to come and bring the word, I kept coming back to this passage because we need, especially in this last year, we need to be reminded that we as Christians will make it to the end. If you have been a Christian for longer than a day, you should be amazed that you're still a Christian. I am amazed that I am still trusting in Jesus Christ today. The Lord opened my eyes to the truth and beauty of the gospel around age 11. I don't know how old, uh, was it, was his name, Jack? Jack, yeah, I don't know how old Jack was, but it looked like close to my son's age, but I trusted Christ around the age of 11. I was baptized around that time as well. 36 now, so that's, I'm going into my 25th year as a Christian. I was just reflecting upon that the other day. I can't believe 25 years. That's what really old people used to say. And now I'm saying it. I've been a Christian for 25 years. It's just insane. And I'm amazed that I'm still a Christian. You know why? I went to a public high school. And uh, as rough as public high schools can be now, they were bad then as well. Sin was rampant, Um, the temptations were all around me, and the pressure to fit in felt so strong at times that it was unbearable. And yet, I didn't cave. I kept trusting in Jesus. Why? I attended a Christian college, Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, and you would think that going to a Bible college would ensure my faith continuing, and yet I had a doormate, a buddy of mine, who seemed to be, you know, more passionate about Jesus than I was, but in the first year, he took some classes that uh, exposed what looked like apparent contradictions in the Bible. I didn't think they were. They could be settled very simply, 
but he couldn't shake it. He started questioning things. He started questioning God. And as far as I know, at this point now, he is an atheist, possibly an agnostic. He just doesn't know what he believes. Why wasn't that me? Went to seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, yes. And again, it's a safe place, right? That's going to ensure that guys and, and gals who go there press on in their faith. I had a fellow seminarian, a fellow church member, whose dream it was to be a pastor. Like he just so desired to be a pastor to the point where it was an idol for him. And he would not let anyone stand in his way, not even his own wife. And she just caved under the pressures of seminary and raising these three little kids and, uh, and, and his desire to be a pastor and, and nothing would stop him. And she ended up divorcing him. I don't know where they're at today, but I don't think they're doing well. Why wasn't that me? My wife and I had a lot of struggles in seminary. And then when you consider the spiritual realities of Satan and his demonic hosts who are actively after me and out to devour me in my family, in my faith, in my reputation, and my ministry, what confidence do we have as Christians that we're going to wake up tomorrow morning still being a Christian? What makes you think that when your alarm goes off, you won't stop trusting in Jesus? What about five years from now? What about 20 years from now? When the pressures are higher than they are right now, what confidence do you have that you will remain a Christian the rest of your life and into eternity? The text tells us where our confidence lies. Verse 23 now may the God of peace himself. See that? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's, notice, he does not say, may the God of peace do 50% and you do the other half. He does not say, may, may the God of peace help you out a lot and you just kind of complete the rest. No, it says, may the God of peace himself do this. And therefore, the confidence that we have that we will not stop trusting Christ until he dies and we will be accepted on that last day is that the God of peace himself will make it happen. That's the point of this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 23 to 24, this is a, a fitting close to a really good letter. If you never read through 1 Thessalonians, it's very encouraging. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter because he planted this church in the city of Thessalonica along with his buddies Timothy and Silas. But the problem was that the three of them were forced out of that city as persecution arose. And so if, if they wanted to avoid death, they needed to leave. But that was, that was a problem because the church there was just sort of left to fend for themselves. I mean, Paul didn't just go and rapidly plant churches. He would go and stay for years at a time even sometimes. Why? 
to, to disciple, to, to raise up elders who could shepherd the congregation. But he didn't have that opportunity here. And so he was very burdened about their spiritual welfare. And it seems, the evidence we have from First Thessalonians is that the majority of the church were new Christians. And so Paul was burdened that they might cave into the pressures of this world and the persecution that was arising in that city already against Christians. And they might say, this ain't worth it. I'm not doing this Christian thing. It's not worth it to follow Jesus. I want you to look in chapter 3, verse 1, and just get a feel for Paul, how Paul was feeling regarding this church. He expresses <coughs> how he was feeling. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. They were already experiencing persecution as these new believers. Notice what he says next. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What? Christians are destined for afflictions? What does that mean? This is not talking about, hey, this is how things work out sometimes. No, no, no. This is saying that God has designed it and even planned it that Christians would go through afflictions. We're destined for this. Why would God do that? You know why? Not because he's mean but because he's all about doing the business of sanctifying us. Part of the means is afflictions. Look at verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. In other words, he's saying Christianity 101. These guys were new Christians. This church in Thessalonica was a new church. Christianity 101, part of the basic teaching of Christianity is this, you're going to suffer. There will be afflictions. Paul told them right off the bat. So they knew what they were signing up for. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Paul was burdened for them. It adds to that fact, doesn't it? Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, I wasn't sure if you all were going to make it. I, I, didn't, I didn't know if you would cave into the pressure and that Satan would do his deceiving work that he is so good at and all of our efforts in ministering the gospel to you would amount to nothing. So Paul's burden was great, but he received good news from Timothy after Timothy went there and came back to report. Look at verse six. But now that Timothy has come from us, to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You see his point? He wanted them to keep going. He wanted them to ensure and make sure that he got report that they're still going on. They're still pressing on in their faith. 
And so knowing that God started this work of salvation in them, and now seeing that God is continuing that work of salvation in them, Paul closes the letter in chapter 5 by giving them hope that God will complete the work of salvation in them. And he is very confident of this. His confidence of their final salvation comes in the form of a prayer and a promise. So I want to look at each of those, beginning with a confident prayer. Look at verse 23, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God do this. That's a prayer, right? May God do this. I'm, I'm, I'm praying, I'm longing, I'm desiring that God would do this. How badly I want to see God do this. Do what? Notice the language there. Verse 23, sanctify you completely. What does that mean? Complete and total sanctification. If you don't know what that word means, just look at the second half of the verse. This is where the Bible interprets the Bible. The second half of the verse is parallel to the first half. Look at what it says in the second half. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the parallel. You have the word sanctify that corresponds to be kept blameless. You see that? And then you have that language completely corresponding to your whole soul and spirit and body. Let me just say as a parenthetical statement, don't get hung up on the fact that Paul mentions three parts there, soul, spirit, and body. I think the scriptures teach that man is comprised of two parts, uh, outer man and inner man. So when he uses soul and spirit, he's just talking about the inner man. But he's using more than just one word for the inner man. Why? This, the point is simply, it's a complete work. It's a total work. Inner man, outer man, totally sanctified at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just prayed for a, a, a lady who's having some health issues. I feel like we pray that often at our church. When I, when I got to uh, my church, Kinney Avenue Baptist Church or Christian Fellowship, uh, in two years ago, the average age was 70. So we were praying for health issues a lot. <laughs> and so uh, the, the people there... They, they, they just were so good at praying for one another in this way, but they longed more. I'm starting to feel it now a little bit, but they longed for a complete sanctifying work of the body. Don't, don't neglect that reality. It's a beautiful thing to know that our bodies will be transformed. We are whole persons, not just the inner man. Every aspect of us will be sanctified. What does that mean? This is the verb form of the word holy, to make holy. And when you couple that word sanctify with the word blameless, what does that mean? No blame. You will not be blamed for any sin at all when Jesus returns. This gives us a picture of what it will be like to stand before the judge of all the earth on the last day. 
Not even a scent, not even a whiff, not even a spot, not even the smallest remnant of any sin that you've ever committed in this life in deed, word, desire, or thought. That's amazing. Isn't it? That's amazing. If, it's only amazing if you feel the weight of your sin. If you don't know the weightiness of your sin, that's not that amazing. Are you weary of your sin? Are you weary of dealing with the same kinds of sins that you dealt with as a Christian years ago? Being a Christian 25 years now, and I look back and I'm dealing with the same kinds of sins that I did then. Yeah, the Lord has grown me, praise him. But those same sins are still around. They manifest differently. Fear of man, lust, envy, craving for acceptance and approval, insecurity as it manifests in different ways, anxiety, anger, impatience, laziness. Sometimes I look back on my life of 25 years as a Christian, I, I feel tired because I feel like I should be further along than I am. I'm sure that's sinful too because it's probably prideful. <laughs> I'm just weary. I'm weary of my sin. I'll admit to you, one of the sins that I have struggled with for years, ever since as far back as I can remember, is the sin of what you might call the fear of man. Putting it like this, it's a craving to be accepted. Just maybe put it like this, I care too much about what other people think of me. It's not wrong to care about what people think of you, but to care too much is a problem. You think this is just something that teenagers deal with, not a thing for adults, but it manifests differently, doesn't it? I mentioned my uh, son, JJ, Jeremiah James, three years old, it's really uh, fun to see his personality just blossoming. The other day, he came into my room, and, uh, and he looks at me with a face that is just absolutely dead serious. And he says, Dad, you chunk. I said, did, what did you say? You chunk. Did you say I'm chunk? Now, at this moment, all these insecurities are just flooding into my heart, right? Like, the thing that I longed for as a dad was for my kids to say to their other friends, my dad can beat up your dad. Like, I used to say that all the time to my friends growing up. Not, my dad is fat. So, so I'm feeling like a lot of insecurity, all this just flooding up at this point. So I, so I ask him again, did you say I'm chunk? And he says, yeah, you chunk. <sighs> so you saying, did you say I'm strong? Yeah, you chunk. <laughs> JJ has a speech impediment. Praise the Lord. He's, he's a little bit delayed in his speech. And so my rest is, my, my heart is feeling so much more at rest now because in that moment, I was craving the approval of a three-year-old. Yes, <laughs> that is how sinful I am. Now, I mean, you know, that's, 
that's a silly example, isn't it? Like, it's funny, and I've told that story so many times now because it is hilarious. It was one of the funniest moments of my life, and I'll tell it again and again and again. And honestly, I was just waiting to use it as a sermon example just because it's that funny. But as I've reflected on my life and realized that, honestly, I've been dealing with the same kinds of sins, this, this one in particular, since back when I was a kid. The Lord has grown me, but I still feel that pull towards that, that desire, that craving to be accepted and approved of. And it manifests in wicked ways. It's still there. So when I hear the Apostle Paul say here in this passage, the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. That's really good news. It's been Paul's concern all throughout this letter that the church of Thessalonica, and by implication, all churches, Southside Baptist Church, it's what God cares about. He cares about your church, and he cares about this for you, that you would stand on the last day completely blameless before God. Now I want to ask, how will we be blameless on the last day simply because we will be made holy. Isn't that the point of this verse? You will be sanctified. How in the world are we gonna be blameless before God just because we will be made holy? Because that doesn't take away from the fact that we were unholy for a lot of our life, every day. Just because a person stops stealing and never steals again doesn't take away from the fact that he stole at one point and deserves punishment for that sin. So how can Paul say we will be entirely blameless before Christ on the last day just because he will clean us up entirely at that point? Doesn't take care of our past record, does it? What does? Paul here is assuming something he's already said earlier on in the letter. And I want you to look there at chapter five, verse nine. Look at chapter five, verse nine. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not destined. If you're a Christian, you are not destined to face the wrath of God. You're not, you don't have to look forward to that. What do you look forward to? Salvation through Jesus. I want you to notice this connection. He's saying no wrath from God because of our sin, but salvation from that wrath helps us understand one of the main things we're saved from, right? Saved from God's wrath. Salvation from that wrath, and notice that key phrase, through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Get this connection. Through Jesus, we're saved from wrath. What's he getting at? Look at verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
What's the implication? What is the connection between the fact that we will not receive wrath and that Jesus died for us? Is he not saying that in his death he took that wrath for us? Willingly, in our place, so that we would not have to for all eternity. That's what the cross is about. This is the heart of the cross of Jesus Christ. Some people really don't like this, by the way. People who claim to be Christians say, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God the Father in our place. You know what that sounds like to me? Divine child abuse. I've heard it put like that. You ever heard that? God the Father unleashing his wrath on God the Son. That's divine child abuse, cosmic child abuse. It's not for many reasons, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but one reason why it's not is because Jesus willingly laid down his life. He did it because he, he wanted to. He loves his father. His father loves him, and they love to glorify themselves through the salvation of sinners who don't deserve it but deserve his wrath. He did it willingly. It's not divine child abuse. That's baloney. Jesus stepped in our place and took the wrath we deserved. Soak it up. Don't let familiarity with such truths breed indifference towards those truths. Soak it up. Take it in. If you are a Christian, the reason why you will not receive wrath on the last day is because Jesus already received it for you. And so your, your record, the punishment that you deserve for the record of your sin in this life has been dealt with. The punishment taken care of. And on that last day, you will be sanctified completely. Both are needed. We need that record of debt taken care of. And on the last day, we need to be made entirely new so we don't keep sinning into eternity. We will be both positionally and functionally pure at the time of Jesus' return. That day is coming. It's not a fairy tale. It's reality. Jesus is coming. As that old hymn says, just a few more weary days and then I'll, what? Fly away which I take to mean, be with Jesus. It's coming. It will happen. How do you know that? How do you know this is gonna happen? How can you be confident of that? This is what Paul highlights next. He moves from his confident prayer to a confident promise. The prayer he just prayed will happen. Why? Because of the promise in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now notice first how Paul refers to God here. He says, he who calls you, the one who calls you. What does that mean? This is referring to God's ability, specifically his ability to make you his own, to awaken you 
from spiritual death and bring you into spiritual life. This is an effectual calling. This is not talking about a generic call of the gospel that goes out to everyone. This is talking about that effective work whereby God says, you're mine. And when he says that, it happens. Like Jesus, when he said to Lazarus, when Lazarus had been dead for four days in the tomb, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was not like, hey, I'm good in here, resting. I'm going I'm to wait a few. Called. He came. The call affected the response. The God who calls you will surely do it. Do what? Answer the prayer of verse 23, right? The prayer to make you completely holy and without blame at the return of Jesus Christ. God who calls you. We'll do it. Now, let's ask this question. Why do you think Paul feels the need to draw our attention to the calling of God upon us? He could have just said, God will surely do this. But he says, the God who calls you will do this. Why? What does God's initial call unto salvation have to do with the certainty that he will bring about final salvation. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's the point of this passage too. I think that the idea is the exact same. The God who started the work, namely he called you to himself, He's going to finish the work, namely sanctify you completely. When we are reminded of how we were initially saved and brought into right relationship with God, that boosts our confidence in his ability to keep us saved until Jesus comes and present us blameless at that time. You, you, got, you got to get this connection here. If you think your initial salvation was ultimately dependent upon you, I believed, I chose, it was ultimately my decision, and of course you believed, of course you chose, of course you decided. No one's doubting that, no one's questioning that. The question is, why you? You ever think about this? Why did you choose to trust Christ and follow him and your neighbor or your friend or your coworker or your family member who heard the same gospel as you remains in their unbelief. What is the decisive difference? If the answer you give to that is something about you, like you're spiritually smarter, you're somehow more in tune with God, the answer falls ultimately on you, then you're standing on shaky ground as to whether or not you're gonna make it to the end. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Salvation is of the Lord from the beginning, then you can bet salvation will be of the Lord at the end. Here's how one person put it. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Catch that? If it was ultimately dependent upon you, you're toast. 
but it's not. Why? Because he who called you is going to do it. Your initial salvation, ultimately caused by God, therefore you can be 100% that you're 100% confident your final salvation will be caused by God as well. Notice, it's not just the fact that he called you that gives you this confidence that the prayer of verse 23 is going to be answered. It's the fact that who, the one who called you has the kind of character to follow through. Notice what he, how he describes God here. Verse 24, he who calls you is what? Faithful. He is faithful. So if his calling highlights his ability to do it, then his faithfulness draws attention to his integrity to actually carry out what he can do. you got to have both. One without the other really is worthless, isn't it? If God's character is totally trustworthy, but he lacks the power to carry out what he wants to do, there's no hope for you. And at the same time, if God is infinitely powerful, but he lacks the trustworthiness and integrity to do what he is capable of doing, there's no hope for you. You ever played the trust game? I'm talking about trust game where you get a kid, you probably should be a kid, someone that's somewhat lightweight, and they stand perfectly still and they're just supposed to fall back as soon as the person says fall, and make sure you fall back, not forward. There's been disastrous events happened when people don't follow the rules. They fall back and, and you, you know that they fully trusted the person who's behind them to catch them if they remain perfectly straight. I used to play this game with my siblings growing up. Not a good idea. Because my siblings uh, lacked at least one of those things we just mentioned. Like my little sister, she's sweet. She, she wanted to catch me. But she didn't have the ability to do it because I was way heavier than her. My brother, my older brother, dude was strong. Strongest kid in the neighborhood. But he thought it was hilarious to step aside when I fell back. He had the ability, but not the character. My dad had both. To such a degree that I was willing to fall off of like the back of pickup trucks perfectly straight into his arms because I trusted not only that he could do it, catch me, but also that he would actually do it. You got to have both. The same is true with God. God is not only able to present us blameless before Christ at his coming, he is faithful to do it. He can and he will. And I would suggest that these really are the two main areas where Christians need to fight to put their trust in God. Think of how different you would respond to the difficulties of life if you were trusting God in both of these areas. Too often, it's one or the other. Well, quite, most often it's, I know he could. I know he could help me get through this. I just don't know if he will. It's not true. We have to trust he's able and willing, he's powerful, he's good. He can do what he says and he will do what he says. Listen, this is gonna happen. Struggling saint, this is going to happen. 
weary Christian, this is going to happen. Those who feel like giving up, don't. He came this morning and was like, I'm giving one last shot to this Christian thing. Don't. This is going to happen. And when you hear the promise that he's able to keep you and he's faithful to keep you, believing that promise is the means by which he does keep you. Like, why, do, why does Paul feel the need to tell us this? Why does he feel the need to tell us this promise that he's surely going to do it? Because when a Christian hears that promise and what God will do, gives us confidence and gives us strength and gives us help to press on so that it does happen. Believing this promise that God will keep you is the means by which you are kept. So I ask you again, how do you know you're going to wake up a Christian tomorrow? What confidence do you have that you will stand blameless before the judge of all the earth when he comes? How do you know you're even going to make it to that point? The only truth that can give us the confidence we need to keep going, to press on, is this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that shows us who you are, that you are able and you are good, that you are powerful and you are faithful. We praise you that we can bank on these truths when frankly sometimes in this life as we view our circumstances, it can look like you're not those things. Help us to believe that you are powerful and good. And let us bank on the promise. Father, I pray for that struggling saint who is here this morning, who's really tired of their sin, really tired of the the affliction that they may be experiencing. Lord, let this promise from you penetrate their hearts like never before. I pray that it would overwhelm them, that your grace, your mercy, your love, your faithfulness, your goodness, your ability would overwhelm them and that would serve as a means by which they keep going, knowing you'll keep them to the end. Do it. We know you will because you said you will. So do it and we'll trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.